Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Euroactive debate, where we're going to be talking about discrimination in Europe in the times of COVID. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you live from the Euroactive studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now, right now, discrimination in Europe is a topic high on the agenda of European leaders and policymakers. But despite all the legislation and policy aimed at its prevention, questions remain as to whether these laws and rules are being applied effectively. According to the Fundamental Rights Agency, the proportion of those who think discrimination in the EU is widespread has increased drastically since 2012. Now, there are policy tools in place designed to reduce and prevent discrimination, but the question is whether the public is aware of these tools at their disposal. With recent developments in Europe, such as the LGBT-free zones in Poland and the racist behavior of some uh, football fans in the UK after Euro 2020, the issue of making sure that the European public is aware of the legal tools available to them has become more important than ever. There are also worries that the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated racism and related intolerance, with an upsurge in othering and racist incidents against people of perceived Asian origin, Roma, and migrants. Now, Mindset is a collaborative project between Euractiv in Brussels and Romania and JEF Europe, and it's funded by the REC program. It's attempted to raise these concerns by focusing on the media and youth in Northern, Eastern, and Southern Europe. Mindset discusses how these different areas uh, differ when it comes to discrimination and what needs to be done both on a national and European scale to support victims and entities supporting victims of discrimination. So to start out to tell us more about Mindset, I'd like to introduce Josie Hene from Euractive, who will give a short overview of the Mindset project. Josie? Hi, Dave. Good morning, and uh, thank you again for everyone for joining us today. Uh, my name is Josie Hane, and I am one of Euractiv's European project managers responsible for Mindset. And as Dave said, it's the EU-funded project that's linked to this event. Uh, Mindset stands for Moving the Ideas of Non-Discrimination, Supporting Inequality Transformation. Um, it's a project that's funded by DG Justice through the REC program, and it aims to raise awareness on non-discrimination in Europe with a specific focus on the media and the youth. And in the belief that media can play a prominent role for the last 20 months, with this month actually being the last month of the project, Euractiv has worked with our partners, which is Euractiv Romania, our partner in Romania, and also Jeff Europe, Les Jeunes Européens Federalistes. And we have created communication, awareness raising, and capacity building activities to put a spotlight on discrimination based on ethnic origin in Brussels, Romania, Italy, and Sweden. Uh, to give an example, we've organized media trainings with a specific focus on giving journalists the tools to report correctly on non-discrimination in Europe. And also we've organized stakeholder workshops with a specific focus on equality bodies in these countries. This final form of the project uh, will now also look into a relevant topic right now, which is how COVID has affected discrimination in Europe and also how to combat it. Uh, thank you again for joining. And uh, before passing the floor back to Dave, please enjoy our Mindset Project video. 14% of citizens report having suffered racist violence. 50% of people experience discrimination when searching for work because of their ethnicity. The risk of poverty is almost double among people of immigrant origin than the rest of EU citizens. 
only 14 out of the 27 member states have dedicated action plans to fight racism and ethnic discrimination. These are only a few examples of the forms of injustice that, in spite of the progress, still persist in the EU. According to the EU treaties, any form of discrimination based on any grounds such as sex, sexual orientation, religion, belief, language, disability, political or any other opinion, as well as race, color, ethnic or social origin, shall be prohibited. There are currently five EU directives aimed at tackling different forms of discrimination, one of which is specifically targeting discrimination on the grounds of race and ethnic origin. However, the implementation varies quite a lot from country to country and could definitely be improved. By the way, even though there are equality bodies in all member states, only one-third of EU citizens are fully aware that they are legally protected against discrimination. In 2008, the European Commission went one step forward and tabled a proposal for a directive on implementing the principle of equal treatment in a horizontal way. However, as unanimity is required at the Council, the text has been blocked ever since. The recent Black Lives Matter demonstrations across Europe has put the issue back on the agenda. Euractiv and Euractiv Romania have joined force with the Jean Européen Fédéraliste and the Migration Policy Group to raise awareness on persisting discriminatory practices across the EU, educate the public about the proper ways of addressing these issues, look at the existing legislation and its implementation in different member states, with a particular focus on Italy, Sweden and Romania, share the stories of the people suffering discrimination and amplifying the voices of experts in the field while working to improve media coverage, because the information is key for change. So that's the context that we're having this discussion today. And indeed, we're going to be talking specifically about how COVID has exacerbated these trends and whether or not it's actually moving things forward when it comes to anti-discrimination legislation and policy. We heard there how uh, some of the efforts have been blocked by national governments and the council. And also, it's not uh, all member states in the EU that even have any form of discrimination policy or redress at national levels. So we're going to hear more about that from our panel of experts. Before I introduce them, uh, let me let you guys know a couple of housekeeping notes. First of all, you guys will be able to ask, answer, ask your questions to the panelists using the feature on the right-hand side of your screen. You can just put your questions in there starting now, and I will be reading out those questions to the panelists toward the end of the panel. You can also participate in the debate online on Twitter using the hashtag EADebates right there below me. So let me introduce our panelists now. We have Shabold Schmidt, Head of Unit for Non-Discrimination and Roma Coordination at the European Commission's Justice Department. We have French MEP Pierre Karlskind from the Renew Europe Group. We have Swedish Green MEP Alice Kunki. Uh, we have Jose Antonio Moreno-Diaz, a lawyer, a legal advisor on immigration, asylum, and integration issues at the European Economic and Social Committee. We have Ilka Adam, political science professor at the Brussels School of Governance and co-director of the Brussels Interdisciplinary Research Center on Migration and Minorities at VUB. And finally, we have Juliana Santos-Valgren, senior advocacy officer and acting director at the European Network Against Racism. Thank you all so much for being with us today to talk about this very important topic. Uh, Mr. Schmidt, let's start with you. So tell us a little bit about 
what the European Commission is doing to combat discrimination. Thank you, Dave. Good morning to everyone. Well, the Commission is uh, working uh, mainly in, on three avenues in order to uh, uh, combat discrimination and to protect the core value of uh, equality. First, as guardian of the treaty, we are uh, the ones who make sure that uh, the member states of the European Union have properly applied the legislation, which all has been nicely presented in the uh, run-up video, and that it's also applied in practice, not only transposed into the national legislation, but also applied. The uh, Commission is also carefully looking how this application takes place. And of course, uh, there was also a reference to a gap in the legislation. We have uh, proposed a, a, a legislative act to, to fill this act, but not only that. The Commission is also not satisfied uh, with the um, diversity, how the uh, existing legislation in the field uh, of racial and ethnic origin, but also other grounds is applied uh, throughout the European Union. And that's why we have also decided uh, to come up uh, with a new legislative proposal in the field of uh, uh, equality in the course of the next year. This has just been announced in the new work program. So that is the legislative field. The uh, other area where we are active is to monitor the actual equality situation in the European Union. It is uh, unfortunately such that uh, we do not have regular statistical uh, information from the member states on the uh, equality situation. And that's why the European Commission <clears throat> is uh, doing regularly the so-called Eurobarometer surveys, which go to the broad public in order to better understand how discrimination is perceived by the citizens. And in addition, there are the uh, surveys by the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights, uh, which uh, go to the individual minority groups to, under, to see their uh, experiences of discrimination. And it's extremely interesting, uh, just to flag that, that we have a very broad public support. About three quarters of the EU citizens are fully in favor of this core value. But when it comes into the experiences, then the picture is very sad and bad. And just to give you uh, an example, uh, the most uh, discriminated groups are actually the Roma, you mentioned them, and uh, less than uh, half of the uh, uh, respondents would, for instance, feel comfortable with having a Roma person in highest elected uh, position. This is really striking and uh, it's similarly bad for LGBTI trans people. Stemming from that, we come to the third avenue where we are working, and that is actually um, dedicated uh, policies uh, where we uh, engage in a dialogue with member states uh, in order to drive forward even beyond the competences that are assigned to the European Union, uh, the uh, topic of equality. It was mentioned already, we have dedicated uh, strategies. The most developed one is the one on Roma equality. Uh, then we have also a more broader action plan on anti-racism, which is now in full swing. 
And we have also a new uh, LGBTIQ equality strategy. There's also gender equality strategy, disability strategy, um, uh, anti-Semitism strategy. So there are a number of strategies which are in place and where we are working with the member states uh, to um, have a positive dialogue to achieve a situation that each member state takes the appropriate uh, steps. And uh, just to give you one example out of many, uh, uh, we are currently in the process uh, to develop guidelines for national anti-racism or LGBTIQ equality um, actions in the member states. This is in a nutshell, very briefly, but in the discussion, I'm uh, very happy to go more in detail with the different avenues. Thank you. Thanks very much. So that's what the European Commission is up to. Let's hear about what the European Parliament is up to. Uh, Pierre, if we could turn to you, uh, just making sure you're there, Pierre. Yeah, I'm there. Okay, and uh, I, have the, yeah, I have my, okay, my camera. Pierre, I want um, to ask you um, about the, the current context we find ourselves in. So do you think that EU policies need to be updated or adjusted to adjust to things like the pandemic, like what we're experiencing right now? Well, um, first I'd like to, to thank Euractiv for, Euractiv for inviting me uh, to, to this panel. Uh, as you might know, uh, one of the main uh, issues regarding the discrimination that I am uh, fighting for inside the European Parliament is the LGBTI discrimination. So I will uh, mainly uh, focus on the on this uh, aspect, and we will uh, maybe uh, maybe we can draw some general conclusions uh, from it. Uh, but honestly, uh, I think that we should reverse the question. Uh, I think we have to adjust our anti-discrimination policy to COVID, but we also need to adjust our anti-COVID policies to reduce their negative impact on, uh, on discrimination. Um, in fact, uh, COVID affected more strongly segments of the population uh, already discriminated and uh, it increased the discrimination gap. Uh, a few examples from the, the LGBT uh, uh, people. Uh, in order to uh, uh, make uh, to to uh, be sure that uh, the message of the uh, the NGO is passed, we need freedom as, uh, of assembly, for example, uh, to organize prides. Uh, but COVID took this freedom away, with uh, governments sometimes using COVID as an excuse to keep LGBTIQ uh, people uh, quiet in these prides. Uh, there are there are also a problem uh, of a specific access to to healthcare uh, because uh, we know all over Europe um, that uh, uh, COVID uh, easily restrain access to to healthcare. And one final example is in some families uh, having a gay son or a lesbian uh, girl is not well accepted. Confinement made family live together during days and days where to go if needed, for asking help in time of confinement or uh, end of limitation of physical meetings was a real issue uh, for some, uh, some people. So we could uh, summarize by saying that uh, COVID completely shut down, well, not completely, shut down a part of the LGBTI uh, movement. It cut his uh, access to public space it made them stay uh, at home 
when uh, the aspiration is on the contrary to come out to be visible. And one, uh, one of the things is that uh, COVID completely erased anti-discrimination organization from public space uh, and uh, for uh, the, the from the, the media uh, sphere. Uh, they the one and only topic of debate in the media during more than a year has been COVID. So uh, sometimes I really have the impression that on many topics, not only discrimination, of course, uh, we, we've lost. Uh, at least one year, maybe uh, 18 months. What, what should be done? Uh, we need, of course, to ensure a proportionality of restrictive uh, measures. Uh, this is really uh, important. We should give uh, flexibility uh, for people to choose their quarantine place. Uh, there are there experiments on that, uh, that might be uh, interesting. And we need to monitor closely the impact of emergency measures on uh, human rights. And this is something that we will have to do uh, because the crisis is not over and we will have to make sure that uh, uh, the, the freedoms are uh, restored uh, properly uh, in the European. And finally, maybe we have to, uh, we have understood that uh, as we couldn't meet uh, together and we, we have today this video conference, uh, the use of the digital, how can we make sure that the digital could be a tool to make better know the institutions, the NGOs that are dealing with uh, discrimination. All these things made us uh, think about that, uh, and I will be uh, glad to hear the, the comment and question of the of the the, the people uh, attending the, the the video conference. Thanks, Pierre. Yeah, this question of whether the COVID uh, emergency measures have uh, increased discrimination is a really key one. It's something we'll come back to during the discussion. In fact, I see we've already received a question about it from the audience. Um, Alice, let's go to you next. Do you think that the EU's anti-discrimination policy is keeping up with the times? Thank you, Dave, for the question, and thank you for inviting me to these discussions. Well, uh, my short answer is uh, no. Uh, we need to do so much more. And uh, I think that is an important fact to state uh, when we discuss uh, what to do and uh, how the situation is, that we are not doing enough. And I think it also is important to underline the fact that the willingness is not total from all the uh, governments and from all politicians within the EU, the 70, uh, 27 member states, that this is something that is important. Uh, because uh, sometimes I have, I got the feeling that when we discuss discrimination and racism and anti-racism and how to combat discrimination, uh, we discuss it as if uh, this is something that we all are uh, devoted to fight, but all are not in this fight because there are people, there are politicians, there are governments that think and feels that the discrimination is acceptable. And this is the big problem. Uh, it's a huge problem. And one outcome of this acceptance that racism uh, is accepted is that the uh, Equal Treatment Directive uh, that I am the rapporteur uh, for uh, has been blocked for 14 years 
as said in the in the movie, the short movie we saw, we just saw, uh, and this blockage of this uh, directive is uh, uh, a clear uh, evidence. Uh, of that uh, discrimination and the fight against discrimination are not shared as an important uh, issue um, uh, by all. So uh, yes, that, that's a quite a, a bit longer answer than the no, we are not doing enough, we need to do so much more. And uh, of course, as uh, Mr. Schmidt said, um, there have been so many strategies uh, and uh, there are now uh, in the new working program uh, suggestions, uh, uh, we can see that legislation in some parts will be put on the table, uh, but still there are so much more that we need to do. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, this question of the geographic divide on this issue between Europe's West, East and South is something that we'll come back to during the discussion. Jose Antonio, let's go to you uh, next. You can really speak to the legal aspects of this. How strong, legally speaking, are the EU's non-discrimination law and practices? Good morning, Dave, and thank you very much to take your take uh, the European Economic and Social Committee on board on this debate and thank you Euractiv uh, for uh, arranging all the details and, and preparing this debate. Definitely there is not strong enough the tools from the legal point of view that the European Union is developing against discrimination. As uh, you all know and, and almost a year ago in, in September 2020 the Commission presented uh, the Anti-Racism Action Plan, uh, an union of equality, it was called. The European Economic and Social Committee welcomes the Anti-Racism Action Plan put forward by the European Commission and hopes it will help the EU and member states' institutions to renew their efforts in combating racism and other forms of structural discrimination. The plan is relevant and timely. The unfolding of the COVID-19 epidemiological crisis is created, has created new challenges with regard to inclusion and promotion of diversity. Already marginalized, marginalized groups such as migrants have experienced major medical, social and economical hardships. In times of crisis, discriminatory attitudes and actions tend to become more prevalent. Even prior to COVID-19 crisis, the situation of minorities and vulnerable groups in the European Union was deteriorating. Anti-migrant attitudes became more widespread, put forward by electorally driven leaders and parties instigating anti-Muslim, anti-African and anti-Asian sentiments. Historical minorities as Roma, increasingly became targets of racially motivated hated. The Jewish population in Europe became less and less safe, bringing back painful memories of the vicious anti-Semitism that plagued the continent before World War II. Against this background, the plan aims to streamline legislative policy and budgetary actions, while the plan brings together all available instruments, at times it seems to lack ambition and historical depth. Its approach is too prudent, while the situation on the ground is deteriorating fast. 
the European Economic and Social Committee would like to emphasize that action to combat discrimination, racism, xenophobia, and other types of intolerance at European level, it's a clear responsibility enshrined in the founding documents of the European Union. It is not optional, and the division of responsibilities between EU and national authorities should not become the basis for complacency and inaction. A specific concern is how to convince all EU member states to participate in this effort and ensure the active cooperation of various bodies, institutions and organizations at national level. Let's keep the debate afterwards. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Let's turn to Ilka Adam next. Ilka, what are the trends that we're seeing when it comes to European anti-discrimination policy? How is this evolving? Okay, maybe I'll start with a disclaimer because talking about trends is going with a rough brush through um, history and also I'll mainly talk about ethno-racial discrimination on which I have my expertise and which I also observe in my own family uh, on a daily basis for um, long years. So um, we should not forget that we come from a history in which um, ethno-racial discrimination has been um, legally and explicitly institutionalized. Um, we should only think, and many people do not know about, for example, the colonial clause in the European Convention of, um, of Human Rights, in which it was it is stated that um, there's no, there was no automatic application to the overseas dependencies, let's call it as they were called, the colonies. And um, so um, at that time, um, when, when the discussions were ongoing on the European Convention, Leopold Sedar Senghor, the first president of Senegal and then a parliamentarian in France and poet and writer, um, called it not the European Convention of Human Rights, but the European Convention of the Rights of the Europeans. So we introduced this hierarchy, these human rights were not for all. Then we had a whole period, of course, in the post-war period and until, in fact, in many countries, until the 2000s when the directives came on, that we, we didn't have any legislation. So it was just legally possible to discriminate in hiring and in housing and so forth. Um, so a few frontrunners uh, states then started some, after some racist incidents um, in um, mostly 70s, 80s and sometimes 90s. Um, and then with the, 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 the European directives, member states were then obliged to introduce um, legislation that forbids discrimination in several, but far not all um, sectors. So now we are um, in a period in which we have a policy on paper, but it has already been said that there's serious issues on implementation, but also um, this legislation is really based on an individual rights model of enforcement, which makes that you have that you have you are a victim and you go to court and it cannot tackle structural and institutional um, discrimination that is operated by the institution themselves or very deeply uh, ingrained in our societies because of the hierarchies we instituted in fact since enlightenment slavery and and colonialism and there we see a trend now um already before Black Lives Matter, but I mean, after Black Lives Matter and with, with the anti-racist action plan, it's in fact the first European policy document in which we go to the causes where we are not um, only talking about that short period in history of Nazism, um, um, 
that is typical for racism in Europe, but, but recognizes the roots of, of colonialism and slavery and the hierarchy that instituted. And, and that's because um, increasingly um, the, the, the racialized minorities are voicing and are giving their views and their um, mostly relevant insights on discrimination, while the individual rights model of enforcement was kind of still mainly developed by, I mean, there was anti-racism that, um, that an anti-discrimination movement that led to the directives was mainly led by, by white movements, um, in which then the dominant view of, of racism was kind of bad, deviant individuals uh, that do bad things, they're not rational, the radical right-wing um, extremists, and then if you, if you punish, and you have to punish people, they have to go to court, while um, if we if we do not go beyond this individual uh, rights model of enforcement and tackle the structural and institutional uh, the embedded uh, racism, um, we will not move further uh, with regards to um, racial equality and equity. I think. Thanks a lot. And finally, let's go to uh, Juliana. So, Juliana. Would you say that racism and discrimination in Europe is increasing or decreasing over time? Yes, hello, good morning, everyone. I think, Dave, that is the uh, one million euro question. Everybody asks what is, this is a common concern. I think uh, to respond to that, we have to go back to the evidence. So to take a look what the data said. And to respond to your question, I think, I would like to come back to two main points, one of them being um, the manifestation of racism, how it does manifest, and the second point being uh, the um, collection of data. So coming back to the first point, um, it's important to understand that racism manifests itself differently the, in different forms, uh, impacts differently um, specific communities, uh, especially at the individual level. So when you talk about uh, increase or decrease of the, um, uh, let's say, the trends on races, what we can say is that we have a bank of data that will uh, try to understand how one individual discriminate the other. So we are talking about here about the individual approach of, of racism discrimination. And of course, um, with the data, especially collected from civil society organizations, um, we can see there is, there is an increase, unfortunately, um, affecting disproportionately uh, racialized minorities. So, of course, here you can take a look on the example, for example, on gypsies and the Roma communities in Bulgaria, how this is being affected them individually. There is also the case of anti-Semitism, for example, in the rise in the Netherlands. Um, you have the case of Afrophobia, um, uh, discrimination against black people, for example, in the South, in Portugal, in Spain. It's always on the rise. Islamophobia in France, uh, it's a non-stop issue. It's a recurrent point of concern. However, where we do not have data and we do not have enough information is about um, structural and institutional discrimination. And here I come back to the, my second point, which is about equality data collection. Although the Commission has done um, immense effort to produce guidelines, uh, actions, um, being more transversal about this demand in different EU agendas, um, member states still do not collect 
uh, data segregated by race, ethnicity, and other categories. So it makes our work very difficult to, to understand, uh, first of all, which are the increasing cases of individual discrimination, and then, of course, uh, how is this, uh, how are the ramifications also at the structural and institutional level? Um, what is um, very, uh, what is a, a, let's say, a positive um, and a point of hope is also the EU action plan that is has been already mentioned here before by the other panelists, because the EU action plan will be a tool where we can increasingly demand the need for equality data collection. I think this is being um, very much um, streamlined across uh, EU policy. Um, so it's really important that we come back to this data to better understand the different specific forms of discrimination, but also how structurally institutional uh, racism discrimination is impacting different minorities across Europe. Thanks a lot. So I, I want to ask you guys about the issue of subsidiarity. So this is kind of a, a buzzword in Brussels that uh, to explain to a layperson, it's basically what competences should be at EU level and what competences should be at national level. Uh, and so when I think it, this issue of discrimination and racism, this is one of those issues that's very sensitive on this topic about who should be in charge of this, the EU or national governments. Um, so Shabalt, let me ask you, and from the Commission's perspective, where does this issue of anti-discrimination law best fit? What parts of it should be dealt with at EU level? What parts with it, of it should be dealt with at national level, and that should question, does that match what is there in reality in the treaties, and would it be helpful to, to switch up the expectations or the law about this, about where anti-discrimination is tackled? Thank you, Dave. Uh, that's a very important question, and um, indeed, the treaty is crystal clear. The EU has the competence to combat discrimination on exactly six grounds, sex, sexual orientation, ethnicity slash race, uh, religion slash belief, age, disability. It does not need to be mixed with the uh, substance matter of the area where we want to combat discrimination. So just give you the example. When we take education, we do have the right and the duty to combat discrimination in the access to education. But it is not up to the European Union to interfere into the way how the education is organized in the various member states. So the education system itself can be different, but the access to it must be uh, equal. I think uh, there we have a clear uh, uh, delineation where the subsidiarity starts and uh, when the Commission uh, uh, can inter uh, not interfere, can, can act, sorry for, for using the wrong word, English is not my mother tongue. Uh, I think this is a very uh, good division. The, the main problem is, is not here. The main problem we have is, and this was also mentioned uh, uh, previously, the unanimity. It is one of the few areas where we need unanimity for every uh, legal act that we uh, are proposing. And that is also the reason why one of the acts is already blocked by council, as we heard it uh, for uh, uh, more than 12 years, 13 years by now. And 
uh, this is for me the, the main issue. I think uh, uh, our ambition should be to change this uh, unanimity requirement, which is possible by the treaty. There is a passerelle clause, but of course, for that we need also uh, common agreement by uh, all member states. But as long as we have the unanimity, it is extremely difficult to uh, advance with the legislative uh, framework. And as long as that is the case, we have to look very much into the actual implementation. And there, member states can do a lot. I, I don't want to prolong too much, but I think the, uh, the discussion on uh, equality data is extremely important. As uh, it was just uh, uh, said, I mean, uh, we are here in a situation that we are not getting regularly uh, data from the statistical uh, sources, even though that would be possible. And we are now in a process to get uh, that started, but that is very much in the hands of the uh, member states, uh, but I must say that on that we are also working uh, with Eurostat uh, to get it uh, moved. So this is the uh, uh, situation on the uh, subsidiarity question. Ilka, Ilka, let me put this question to you, because Shabot mentioned there that uh, access to education is an EU competence, but the education content itself is a national competence, and we know that so much of racism is learned behavior. It's something that we learn from our societies and we learn uh, in school. We can learn th that racism is bad in school, right? So uh, is it difficult then, uh, given that the EU can't really touch educational curricula, is it difficult then to uh, have a pan-EU strategy on making sure that racism isn't learned in childhood? Um, it's not indeed because there's no legislative competence that nothing can be done. Um, a lot of exchange of best practices and, and, and learning and learning can be done. Um, and I, I do not know how at the moment um, this is happening. Um, and But in the anti-racism action plan, if I remember well, there is attention to um, education and education is indeed is indeed key. And I think in, in, in many schools, uh, good practices um, are happening. I mean, it's uh, schools, schools are essential indeed, um, because um, we, we see so much unequal opportunities um, in schools. Um, we know, for example, from research in Belgium, um, that um, racialized children are, and but also this um, happens on the basis of class and even more at the intersection, are far e more easily um, directed towards uh, vocational technical training and not the general education system that um, prepares for the university and higher education. We know that from evidence in the UK that uh, children that are expelled out of school, that there's also a race and ethnicity uh, factor in that. We know that school handbooks still reproduce um, racist stereotypes. So, um, I mean, I, I, I could see it in the, in the, in the handbooks of my, of my children now in 2020 still. Um, so there's, there's so much to be done, but there's also a lot going on in civil society, also about teaching colonialism in school, which in many countries is not really taught. And if you don't do that, then it's very difficult to understand where we are today. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, exchange and, um, best practice as possible, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm sure Inar has a lot of recommendations um, there, uh, but a lot can be done without necessarily also um, 
having legislation. And in that field, it would be difficult. It will be difficult uh, to change that for the moment. But um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Alice, let me get your take on this. I mean, where is the appropriate balance here about who sets anti-discrimination policy at EU level or at national level? Uh, thank you, Dave. Uh, I think that uh, both Shabols and Ilke have uh, explained it uh, very well. I mean, we have the, the, the frameworks that we have, but that doesn't mean that uh, we can't do anything and that it is important that uh, within the frameworks and the legislative uh, frameworks that we have, it is so important that we really make sure that within the member states, the work is being done. And uh, all the things that uh, uh, Ilke so well put forward on how we can fight uh, racism and, and fight the consequence of racism that discrimination also is, uh, uh, we had with us when I uh, was the rapporteur for the Rights and Values Programme where, where we also uh, argued we in, in the negotiations for the amount of financing this program is so important to be able to make sure that civil society, universities, media and so on and so forth really have financing to make sure that they can be part of, of this job that is needed to be done. Um, but then I also think that it's so important that we who want to uh, and that are willing to fight racism and fight discrimination are aware of that we have our treaties and that the uh, non-discrimination uh, wordings within the treaties uh, are important. They are not there just for fun. <laughs> it's not just nice words. The people who, who created and processed uh, our frameworks, our treaties, they did this for a reason. So I always start, when I have these kind of discussions and debates and take parts of this kind of the seminars, I always refer back to what is said in our statutes, what shall the EU be? Uh, thank you. Um, Juliana, when it comes to this, this question of whether the EU has the appropriate role here. What do you think? What is the right uh, role for the EU? And is there some kind of leeway, some kind of framework here for the EU to get involved in educational content around uh, anti-discrimination law? Or is that too much treading on national sovereignty? Uh, I think the EU has a pivotal role um, in better understanding um, the inconsistencies, the violations, and the gaps in many policies and uh, legislation frameworks. Um, I think as well the EU can be um, uh, a moving force behind any kind of good praxis and exchange and cooperation. Uh, in the frame of education, I think it's really important, like Ilke uh, and Alice said, to go beyond just the legal framework and the legal approach. We can have um, a more constructive and more effective perspective um, because sometimes the law does not um, move very fast as society is moving. Sometimes we need immediate and rapid response to uh, societal demands and changes. Um, in that, uh, that said, I think the EU here can serve as well as a platform to be sure that member states uh, are accountable uh, of their actions and remain um, uh, 
uh, let's say, role models in the fight of discrimination and racism. Uh, it's also important to understand that we cannot talk about any kind of educational tool. As Ilka said before, we have to have a decolonial approach to education. So we also have to come back to the question, what is the concept we are promoting? What is the framework it is that suits best this decolonial approach? Because otherwise, we're just going to we're going to just reproduce the same historical inequalities and the historical narratives that are there, uh, marginalizing uh, racialized minorities and other minority groups. Pierre, a question for you. We've had both Alice and Juliana have mentioned the geographic differences on this issue. We know there are significant geographic divides between Europe's West, East, and South, uh, particularly on the issues of racial discrimination and LGBT discrimination. Um, we also know that the, these differences are accompanied by wealth differences between countries, right? Uh, so how, how can Western Europe, which has different ideas about this than Eastern and to an extent Southern Europe, how can people from Western Europe talk to people from those other areas of Europe about these issues without coming off as lecturing or without coming off uh, with a kind of sense of superiority? Well, the, the first thing is that, um, as it has been mentioned, uh, anti-discrimination policies should be uh, a national policy uh, policies. And um, we, what, what I've seen in Poland, in particular, on the from the LGBTIQ activists, is that who are they calling when they are uh, confronted to a, a government that? Uh, propose a, a, a discriminatory uh, law. They go to the EU. So uh, let's do not forget that EU uh, is also uh, um, a hope, is also hope. Um, in fact, uh, when you look precisely at what's happening in Hungary and in Poland, uh, we can, uh, and, and specifically in the polls, uh, it is really uh, threatening. To, uh, scary to not scary not threatening. This is really scary to see that uh, with all the speeches uh, anti-LGBT from the governments, uh, the Western country believe that uh, Hungarian and Polish people are homophobic. But when you look precisely uh, at the polls, this is not the case, and this is absolutely not uh, the case. So. Uh, uh, this is really something important because when I go uh, in Poland and say you have to uh, uh, be uh, nicer with uh, LGBTIQ people, I'm not the guy coming from the West uh, lecturing the, the East. This is something that this uh, society, the Polish society and the Hungarian society uh, is uh, also defending. So maybe not defending, but uh, also uh, accepting. So. Uh, uh, we, we, this is a big victory of Orban and Kaczynski to have made the Western Europeans believe that Hungarian and Polish people were homophobic. Shebolts, uh, the commission is, is in kind of an awkward position here, right? Because the commission executes the, the desires and the, the agreements of the, the, the national member states. It's the guarantor of the treaties. Uh, but you have different attitudes about this between national governments, has been mentioned, as has been mentioned here several times. So when it comes to this geographic balance, 
Um, how can the commission make sure it isn't just um, focused on the the attitudes or the, the, the norms of Western European states uh, and maybe things that are not so familiar or concepts that are not so familiar uh, in Eastern Europe, for instance? Uh, thank you, Dave. Uh, if you allow me just a small uh, but important correction. The, the Commission is uh, uh, certainly not executing the desire of member states. We are the guardian of the treaty and what we are executing is the law which has been adopted by the legislator, which is the co-legislator, the European Parliament and the member states. And that is our duty to make sure that these laws are applied throughout the European Union. I think this is extremely uh, important. Of course, member states are uh, very important partners because when it comes to the implementation, it's in the member states that uh, it is done. Now, I would also like to, to follow what uh, Pierre just said. Uh, uh, we have to be careful with uh, uh, trying to draw such a crystal clear picture of a, a divide uh, between big and small, uh, rich and uh, less well-off, uh, uh, north, south, east, west. Uh, in the area of um, LGBTI, I can uh, imagine that uh, Indeed, uh, currently the impression might arise that there is such a clear divide, but as Pierre said, uh, the uh, reflections from uh, the citizens, from the population, are not uh, necessarily uh, supporting uh, this picture. And uh, I can just also tell you that uh, it's, it's more in the substance matter itself. For instance, when you look into the details of, uh, of uh, discrimination, you see that it's clearly the group of trans persons who are all over Europe in a far worse situation than uh, other uh, people belonging to the uh, group of LGBTIQ. So this is more uh, the, the challenge we see and, and not so much uh, to, um, um, to, to, to see here the, uh, the divide as you uh, presented it uh, from one uh, uh, um, part of the union to the uh, other. We are very much uh, um, uh, putting our efforts on dialogue. Uh, we have, uh, for instance, in the area of LGBTIQ, established a subgroup where all the member states are participating, where we are discussing the issues uh, that are at stake with all the member states. And, and this is the, the way forward um, and one of the important elements in, in this discussion is also how to bring in the uh, dialogue uh, with the um, civil society. And if you allow me also to, to give you another example, uh, and I like this example because it is uh, the area where we have most of the experience, and that is the Roma inclusion. There we have set up structures together with member states uh, that are uh, in place where we meet regularly with the authorities of the member states, where we can discuss, exchange best practice, show each other how we are engaging in the dialogue, how we are tackling uh, particular problems. And it functions, it functions well, it is not good enough because the, the results are not good enough, but this is the way uh, that we are uh, promoting in the European Commission, indeed to keep the dialogue uh, on um, equal footing and again, the uh, work on the Roma has shown, 
and has made it understood that this is not a question which concerns only a handful of countries, but uh, in the opposite, the discrimination of Roma is something which concerns each and every EU member state. And that is new. That was not that clear 10 years ago that we have also discrimination issues uh, in parts of the European Union where this is not so visible and obvious. Um, Juliana, on that point, uh, I wanted to ask you, in the beginning of the panel, we saw that map of which EU countries have anti-discrimination strategies. They were mostly focused in the West, but there were a number of Eastern European countries that had them. But I'm wondering if those are specifically uh, targeting uh, anti-discrimination against Roma people. Is that the case, do you know? Uh, in, in Romania, for instance, I saw had a law. Yes, what you had, I think Shabot explained it very well. So what you had are different frameworks and you had a Roma strategy that was there to put in place um, policies that would tackle um, the question of Roma inclusion, exclusion structurally. So of course, there are some national action plans trying to move forward uh, a better inclusion of Roma communities in different uh, sectors, such as housing, education, employment. Um, but the question is here, I come back to the first comment uh, from the commission, but also what um, Alice said and Pierre said about implementation. You can have the best legal framework and the legal pro pro proposals um, at the EU level. If you do not um, meaningful implementation national level, these remain empty treaties, empty uh, policies. So what happened with the Roma strategy was really a problem with the implementation. Uh, we do not know how um, the money was uh, uh, even correctly used for Roma communities. Uh, we do not know how these really impact structurally um, uh, societal change. Uh, there is a, a very little information about the impact uh, having the community as direct beneficiaries of these plans. So um, those, I know that we work a lot with, for example, with Ergo Network, and they have um, drafted very interesting reports and publications, uh, and you can see that um, there is a really uh, lack of information on how um, we could really conclude that these uh, frameworks were efficiently, efficient in different member states. Um, Jose Antonio, do you think that um, there is a geographic divide between the people of Europe, or is it just a question of the governments? Thank you, David. I think it's a question, I coincide with the, the previous speakers, I coincide it's a question of the different governments and different politics. But let me introduce some different points that I have. I like a lot your introductory video. And in your video, you say it is supposed that European Union citizenship is aware of discrimination. This is the key point. We do need to translate this debate into the real people that is in our streets, in our villages, in our cities. We do need three main axes to develop. First of all, awareness, to raise awareness among the citizenship, the European citizenship. Secondly, to develop pedagogy strategies to let them know what discrimination is, at which tools they have to uh, combat discrimination. And thirdly, education has been mentioned before. Uh, the historical roots of racism should be subject to renewed interest and action, especially in the area of the education, 
new curricula and new textbooks should be developed and training programs for teachers and educators should be organized with the European Union support, an interdisciplinary approach to common European history and heritage and also European Union responsibility should be promoted at the secondary and tertiary levels of education. And just mention two different points that I want to, to uh, underline. First of all, the European pillar of social rights. As you know, the Commission presented the action plan on the European uh, pillar of social rights and, and the European Economical Social Committee hopes it will strongly support equality in the labour market. I want to mention the labour market also, including for people with a minority racial or ethnic background. We also hope that the social commitments of the European institution and member states will be, will be upheld in the difficult economic times created by the COVID-19 epidemic. And the, my last point is how to integrate. The ECC encourage the Commission to better integrate various plans which have significant overlapping of objectives and instruments. We suggest integrating the anti-racism action plan, the strategy to implement the Charter of Fundamental Rights, the Democracy Action Plan, and the Rule of Law Report. Acknowledging the fact that these plans represent distinct policy fields, we shall also identify common elements and synergies. So we've talked a bit about education and how that can shape attitudes, uh, particularly early in life. Let's also talk about the media and what role the media has to play here. Um, uh, uh, Ilka, let me put this to you. Uh, what role should and does traditional print and broadcast media play in achieving progress and changing the way people think about these issues and the way they behave? And then also, what role is social media having uh, in changing attitudes on this? Okay, these are uh, big questions. I mean, media, social media also reflect, I mean, the whole structures of our societies. They, they do things, but they're also a reflection of the we can say the racialized social structure in which we live, in which, I mean, your life chances in health, education, housing, and everything is determined by ethnicity and race. So these, I mean, first, um, the media uh, definitely reproduce um, racist stereotypes. I mean, there's so much, there's abundant research about that, that for example, if you have articles about Muslims in certain countries, I mean, the connotation, the, the majority of the articles is negatively connotated. Um, so, so there can, a lot can be done. And I think, I mean, media should work um, with a racialized civil society there to really, I mean, to, to be more aware. I mean, sometimes it's also deliberate because it sells better. Um, we should, um, which, I mean, we also uh, function in a, in a system in which some things uh, sell better than others. But um, um, I, I start from the idea that there's a willingness to change and, and, and so this would be done. But it can also change if you have far more diversity of um, ethno-racial um, minorities in the media, and um, I think the BBC has always been given of an out of an, an example, and they have um, really had a positive action um, policy. And not everything is perfect at the BBC. Anyway, they're now out of the EU, so it's not an EU example anymore. Um, but um, positive action to bring 
um, to bring more um, a representation of the population in the media and not only, I mean, this should definitely be done by, by public broadcasting companies. Uh, that's the state should give the example. Uh, but we know that in many countries, um, private media are more followed. Um, so um, there could also be legislation on that. So that's that's a bit of a problem also with, with the European policy. Uh, we have this individual rights model of enforcement where there's no positive obligation for positive action in member states. And in media, this could be done. Um, but now it's all voluntary. I mean, um, so that's that's one. Um, and then social media are indeed also a reflection of what is happening um, um, in society. So if, um, if, if racism happens um, in daily life, it also happens in social media, it's something even, even stronger. And there I think that social media companies could be obliged to stronger act against hate speech. That's definitely the case. And also, I mean, sexist um, um, uh, violence and, 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 and hate speech. Um, let me start also by um, noticing or talking about a more positive uh, development of social media. There's a lot we know of, of racist violence um, on there that should be tackled, but it has also allowed uh, minority voices um, to, to, to speak up, uh, to make voices that were otherwise not visible uh, and heard to become heard. So that's kind of the positive story of social media, which should then be taken up by the mainstream um, media. But I think um, many other of the panelists can talk further about media and social media. But uh, more diversity is definitely needed and racist uh, stereotypes are reproduced by the media and that should definitely be tackled. Yeah, it's an interesting point how so much of our anti-discrimination policy is kind of built around stopping negative examples and it's less focused on um, positive examples, so making sure that there's positive representations and this type of thing. Um, Juliana, what do you think? What is the role of the media here, both traditional media and social media? Yes, Dave. I'd like to second what Yuka just said brilliantly. I think um, there are two sides of this medal. Of course, there is a very negative side, um, and I agree with everything that she said, um, especially in terms of media, mainstream media being a platform for criminalization of minorities, also being a platform to reinforce uh, stereotypes, negative and toxic narrative. Um, towards a specific groups, especially migrants, Muslim, um, especially also in the intersection of gender. If you take a look about how media treats Muslim women, uh, migrant women, black women. So I think there is also a component of gender here that needs to be highlighted. Um, however, I also like to take a look at the good side of things. And um, having learned from Black Lives Matter movement and what happened with George Floyd, for example. It was thanks to social media that this issue came across uh, the, uh, the, uh, the highlights, the, uh, the, the headlines. Um, do not forget that racism and racial discrimination is not a hot topic. Not many mainstream medias, television, broadcast, newspapers are interested to call cover the realities of ethnic minorities and racial minorities, they, especially in Europe, they think that this is not a European problem. This isn't a problem from outside Europe, but not a problem within Europe. And I think what happens with social media is that we bring these subjects back to the table. 
um, and uh, social media has become a platform to increase and give more visibility to the um, specific needs and the specific violence and abuses that racialized minorities suffer at, at, at local level. Um, I think it's also important to, to highlight that um, many of the movements of mobilization um, was only possible due to social media. If you take a look at the climate justice movement and racial justice movement, this is also was a really, really strong platform for engagement and mobilization. Yeah, I think uh, that's a very good point. I think we've seen a lot of European media historically and still currently portray these types of issues as kind of non-European issues, particularly as American issues. And there's been less examination of the issues here in Europe. But we've seen on social media, particularly during the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, people actually saying, hey, we, we have these issues here in Europe. Let's talk about them. Um, Alice, let's go to you next. What do you think is the, the role of media here, both traditional and, and social? Yes, I'm sitting here jumping because there are so many things that you want to say and all of the others are saying so many smart things and you want to add and so uh, I, I really have to concentrate to answer your question because I would like to talk about this for hours and hours. But first of all, I really want to underline something that I've said before but that, that I have felt and know is so important and that is that we really speak in Swedish I'm from Sweden we say that you speak out of your uh, your beer uh, that you you speak the truth and it's about again the willingness uh, we were talking some minutes ago about where where is the line who is is it in the west or the east of Europe which member states but as I think uh, Jose said it's really about different politicians in different governments forming different governments and what kind of politics that they are putting forward because again it is a fact that there are a lot of politicians there are several governments that doesn't care because they are not affected uh, uh, from the racism and the discrimination i mean when i was a minister a minister for democracy and culture in the swedish government uh, when i went to spain during world pride and we were supposed to parade, you know, on the Saturday of, of Pride, you go in this big parade, and there were one million participants in the in the parade, in the march. I was the only minister, uh, and even though I had have had meetings with several ministers from the Spanish government, they didn't, and they had said to me that they should come to the march. They didn't, they didn't show up. And um, when I, uh, uh, and I mean, when I was, uh, in, also when I was a minister, I went to meetings about the discrimination against Roma in, within the EU. I was always the only minister. And even though I tried to call other uh, responsible ministers in other governments and telling them, please come to this meeting because we need to fight the racism and the discrimination against Roma, they didn't show up because it wasn't important enough. And if we are not really telling, saying this and putting this as a fact on the table, then it's, I mean, I also meet people, white people, especially within the EU who says, is discrimination such a big problem, really? Because they are not affected and they don't know that there are governments uh, not willing to take this fight. Uh, but I think that media has a great 
uh, importance. And just as I think it was Julia uh, that said it, that social media has really been a good tool when it comes to us who are uh, racialized uh, and are, are victims of discrimination to, to put our story out in, in the reality because the traditional media often doesn't put this too often are not uh, the best example. I think that BBC, for example, is a great example. They have done a lot. They are not part of the EU, uh, Great Britain anymore. But the media could definitely do so much more. Thank you. Yeah, I think that experience of hearing Europeans say, oh, I don't think there is discrimination in Europe. I think that's something a lot of people watching can relate to. I think that's something we hear a lot on this continent, unfortunately. Um, Shabot, let's go to you next. What do you think is the appropriate um, uh, role for the media here, both traditional and social? Yeah, thanks a lot. And thanks, uh, Alice, also for having been all the time uh, active uh, and, and present uh, when it came also to the Roma uh, inclusion. And um, so you, you said already a lot of uh, things that I was also about to share. I, I think uh, media is extremely important to get uh, the politicians uh, mobilized. At the end, uh, the politicians, they watch very carefully what the media is uh, uh, writing and if a, a subject is taken up, uh, which is uh, perhaps not necessarily in the same way for the whole of the European Union important, but for the given country, for the given region, it, uh, it really uh, matters. Then it is important that the media is active, that they make their independent research, that they uh, uh, present the facts as they are, so that people also have the chance to uh, well understand that we do have an issue at stake. And just let me take this example of uh, uh, colonialism. Uh, at the end, it is true, uh, these heavy crimes uh, committed under the colonial rule, they are directly only to be associated to a handful of EU member states. But it would be too easy to say that for all the other EU member states who never had any colonies and who perhaps even up until recently were in a state of semi-colonial status have nothing to, to do on the racism from their other issues. There we might have segregation, sterilization, Nazi crimes, slavery, the list is endless. And, and there the media is extremely important to bring the topics on the table and to tell uh, also the, the politicians that this is uh, where we need to have actions. By the way, we spoke first uh, about the regional differences. I think we are all fully aware that the fact that, for instance, uh, people with disability, age and uh, sexual uh, orientation are not yet legally pro protected beyond employment is uh, due to the uh, to the action of one of the founding EU member states. Yeah? So this is uh, uh, this has to be seen that uh, uh, and perhaps if the media would have been more active at that time, perhaps this, this uh, could have been uh, avoided. Now coming to the um, um, social media, this is actually um, an area of, of big concern for us here in the European Commission dealing with all these questions. We have to, we have noted uh, during the COVID, uh, all these uh, stereotypes, negative uh, biases, uh, uh, um, conspiracies, which has been have been spreaded uh, through the social media targeting on certain minority groups and uh, 
we we are really uh, uh, seeing the huge danger to the, to our societies uh, stemming from this uh, uncontrolled way how uh, um, not even information but some statements are uh, spread um, uh, through social media and at the end we we know that uh, these biases uh, they can then lead to action like bullying and so on at the next stage it can lead to discrimination which is illegal and then it can even continue to to hate crime and uh, uh, in, in the worst case we we saw genocides uh, which which are all somewhere based on the biases and that's why uh, we are uh, really concerned about the way how these social media are operated. And uh, I'm, I'm really very happy that we have now the discussion on the Digital Services Act, where you know that one of the objectives is exactly to protect also the consumers and the fundamental rights of the consumers. And through that, uh, the, the, the society as a whole from manipulation and misinformation. And, and I'm really happy that the European Union as the first uh, economic entity has started to tackle this very grave problem for our societies. Thank you. Jose Antonio, you wanted to come in on this question of the media as well? Yes, thank you, Dave. I think the, the role of the media is crucial and they are extremely important because they are creating public opinion. So uh, we have problems across European Union with the media. We have problems with the independence of the media in some countries. We have problems with the um, lack of uh, independence of media and the concentration of the media. We have problems with the lack of pluralism in some countries and uh, with the um, oligarchs, owners of media in some other countries. So we have to be conscious of this. We have to be aware that the independence of the media is at the stake. And the European Union has to develop strategies to protect real independent media because they have an extremely important role to develop strategies to raise awareness against discrimination and to avoid fake news against minorities. We have seen that even journalists has been killed in Malta, in the Netherlands, in the Czech Republic. So we, it is important to open the debate about the independence of the media, the real independence of the media, and to protect them for the menaces, even not only from the oligarchs and the lobbies, but also from governments nowadays in the European Union. Um, let's go to some questions from the audience. Uh, um, Pierre, I'll put this first question to you since you mentioned it in your, your first uh, comment. Um, this question is from Trayan. Uh, could the EU COVID-19 travel certificate promote discrimination? How to prevent this? So I think this is going at the issue we've seen in many countries, including here in Belgium, that uh, racial minorities have a lower rate of, of vaccination. And so could that actually lead to discrimination when you are requiring vaccination for various activities and for travel? Um, Paul Lim has a related question here. He says, on COVID, one cannot say that discrimination was intended. Could it be? Uh, COVID obviously affects the rights and freedoms, but are COVID measures illegitimate to protect the general population? So again, I think going to this point that there could be knock-on effects so that the, the effect is, the intent isn't racial discrimination, but the effect could be there. What do you think, Pierre? 
Well, I, I give an example, um, the, the, this question of uh, the place where you are uh, confined. Uh, this is a clear answer to the, the, the issue I raised about the uh, um, question uh, in, in some families. Um, uh, we had an, another example uh, during a COVID-19 crisis. Uh, there were this uh, Belgium, Belgium, Romanian couple, two guys. Uh, they were married in Belgium, but uh, their marriage was not recognized in Romania. Uh, the uh, fact that it was forbidden to come in Romania if you are not member of a family, this led just to the separation of uh, of this couple. And that was uh, something that was not uh, by purpose. I mean, this, this was not intended, but this was a consequence. But we have possible solutions uh, and we must take into account this kind of cases. And uh, by the way, uh, this is uh, one of the reasons why uh, the European Commission is working on the uh, mutual recognition of the older family uh, in in Europe to avoid this kind of. So you you can see that there were uh, concrete discriminations uh, because this was two men, uh, but uh, it is possible to find solution if you take uh, time and if you uh, try to find a, a way of dealing with that. Uh, Alice, uh, put this question to you as well. Do you think there could be some unintended knock-on effects of these types of COVID policies like the digital passports? Also speaking maybe to a, a digital divide, a digital discrimination um, as we move forward with these technologies and these, these COVID rules, can there be unintended consequences there? The, the short answer is yes, <laughs> if you want to move on. It, of course it can, and uh, it has already been shown. I mean, uh, the digital devices, even though many of us, I'm sure, have uh, iPhones and those kind of techniques, uh, of course, uh, all people don't have th that support. I uh, talked to uh, uh, represent for one of our Roma communities the other week, and uh, she told me that uh, in her village, uh, many of them, a minority, uh, I mean, a minority had iPhones, have these digital uh, devices, and it's not only affected them now, when COVID pass are being more and more common to get into restaurants and so on and so forth. But also when it comes to homeschooling and having uh, digital platforms for children, those children who goes to school to be able to follow the school. So it have had a, a massive negative effect on the Roma community, the Roma community she came from. So yes, uh, all the things that we are now uh, enforcing and trying to do to help us to protect us and to still get our societies going can also have a negative and a discriminational effect on some people. Yes. We have another uh, COVID-related question here from Emanuela. Uh, Juliana, I'll put this question to you. So Emanuela asks, what is the impact of COVID in employment inclusion of ethnic diversity? What can the European Union do to ensure that the current gap in job access between EU and non-EU individuals will decrease in the future? Uh, so Giuliani, we're seeing a whole lot of upheaval in the labor market right now. Uh, the Great Resignation, it's called. There's a lot of labor movement because of COVID and because of, uh, as we're coming out of the pandemic, hopefully. 
Um, are there uh, racial uh, discrimination issues coming into play there because of that specific COVID situation? Um, yes, Dave, of course, uh, as previously mentioned, um, COVID just exacerbated the previous inequalities that were there. So if you take a look at the employment, uh, the labor market as a sector, if before the COVID racialized minorities were already highly impacted by discrimination, not only in recruitment, but throughout their careers, the mobility, uh, glass ceiling, uh, you're gonna see this being exacerbated during the pandemic. Um, but coming back to the question, I think one of the main challenges remain that uh, racialized minorities were those more exposed to go back to um, on-site work. So um, racialized minorities um, in general did not have the benefit of working from home. So it means that they were there to, um, to provide uh, essential um, a service to the population. And this being healthcare, this being in transport, uh, this being in the, uh, the food sector, uh, this being uh, in any many essential uh, sectors of the society and with that of course first of all they were uh, exposed to the to the to the to the to the, to the virus um, but also the sectors that were using uh, racialized uh, minorities as hand force uh, such as small uh, medium companies uh, independent uh, service having um, these people that were forced to uh, um, uh, fire some workers because they didn't have the, the, the resources to continue to uh, pay salaries uh, during the pandemic. So racialized minorities here, they are also impacted by that. Plus, um, a very interesting angle in terms of employment um, is that um, they were also the most controlled by uh, police uh, during the pandemic. They were those who were more monitored in terms of mobility, who can walk, who can work, uh, why you are not at home. So what we can see as well that um, many of racialized employers, they were at least um, many times stopped and searched by the police in these mobility controls. And at the end, there were also the minorities that got the highest fine by, let's say, uh, infringing the confinement rules. Uh, Shabot, you wanted to uh, come in on this employment issue? Yes, briefly, thank you very much. Uh, uh, employment and uh, Roma, I would just like to, to recall um, that today we have roughly 80% of the Roma living in poverty compared to 17% of the general uh, uh, population, which means that, for instance, 30% of the households uh, in average of the EU do not even have access to tape water. So you can imagine how under such circumstances, indeed, uh, distance education can function. The, the response is uh, crystal clear. It's, it's no. But I see uh, it is not only a problem uh, uh, of the uh, COVID uh, situation as such, uh, but I see it rather as a challenge that we have to tackle for the future because already now the situation is such that the share of those young Roma uh, who are neither in employment nor in education anymore is far higher and that was even growing before COVID uh, than the general population. And there's a huge risk if uh, the politics is not 
taking countermeasures to catch up this education gap that uh, we will end up even in a more difficult situation. Now we have the information on Roma because of all the statistical surveys, but you can extrapolate that this is true for many of the uh, uh, ethnic minority communities with migrant background, which are in a precarious uh, situation. So it's not only a current problem, and this has nothing to do with the COVID certificate or so. It is really, the, the, the as it was uh, rightly said, COVID has just shown us the uh, problems which were often covered but which were there in the European society. Now they came at the surface and it's crystal clear we have to do something uh, against it if we want to avoid uh, problems on the uh, long run. And I fully agree on the representation of uh, uh, educated persons from the minority groups also within the institutions by the way, including also the European institutions, including the European Commission, without question. Alice, you wanted to come in on this employment and COVID issue also? <laughs> yes, um, again, I would like to have this discussion with all of you all the time. Shabos, you need to invite me for coffee because we need to discuss this and do things uh, even uh, further. But I just wanted to add that uh, Sweden, uh, my home country, is one of the richest countries, not only in the EU, but in the world. And uh, Sweden is also one of the countries that have managed the best during COVID so far the, when it comes to national economics. Even though this is a fact, uh, it's have now been revealed that the black market, uh, as we call it, the illegal working market, especially when it comes to constructing, have been a, an area where the problems have grown. And a lot of people from the eastern part of Europe, from member states, but also outside the EU, uh, from a different part of uh, the old Soviet Union, have now uh, working conditions uh, in Sweden on big construction. We, we, we are building more than ever houses and, and big uh, projects uh, where the, their payments have been dumped and they have no security, no nothing. And this says something about the, the greed, but also about discrimination and racism where, where Sweden is developing and moving forward, but uh, there are people uh, that are discriminated that pays the price during COVID-19. Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting point and in kind of the underside of, of economic development. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there because we're just about out of time. But some really, really interesting points here. I think the two things that really came up is, A, that COVID didn't uh, cause racial discrimination. COVID exacerbated racial discrimination, right? And we could see it playing out over the past uh, year and a half. But the other thing that we saw play out over the past year and a half, which came up several times during this panel is the Black Lives Matter movement and how uh, there, there was certainly here in Europe a kind of awakening to a lot of these issues that I think for a lot of Europeans they didn't fully understand before, didn't fully understand uh, existed here. I think it, particularly as we mentioned in European media there's been a lot of focus on racial discrimination in other countries outside of Europe 
happen, there's been less of a willingness to examine uh, the racial discrimination that takes place here. Uh, so I think really, really great discussion and obviously an ongoing one. I encourage uh, you guys to get, get that coffee and continue that conversation because there is so much to do here, uh, both at EU level and at national level. We talked a little bit about the appropriate split there. Um, and certainly as we come out of the COVID uh, pandemic and the economy, goes through this kind of weird, wobbly period, particularly with the employment market, we will eventually get back to at least a new normal. And part of that new normal can be a more honest, open conversation about racial discrimination in Europe and really trying to make things better for everyone, for all of us uh, to live together in a society. So thank you guys so much for speaking with us this morning. Thank you at home for following along and asking some great questions. And we'll see you here next time for the next EA Debate. Take care.